All right, today we're going to continue our series called Living on Purpose. And today's lesson is, is called Planned for His Pleasure. I want to start with this old fable that I've, I heard years ago. It's about an old man, a boy, and a donkey. And according to this ancient fable, the old man, the boy, and the donkey were traveling through the country one day. And, and as they approached a village, the old man was leading the donkey while the boy was walking behind them. And the villagers noticed them approaching, and, and the villagers told the old man that thought, they thought it was foolish that he was walking instead of riding on the donkey. So the, the old man, to appease those villagers, decided he would mount the donkey and ride it onto the next town. When he approached the next village, the people of that village said that the old man was cruel because he was making the boy walk. And so to please them, the old man got off the donkey, put the boy on the donkey, and headed off to the next village. When he arrived at that third village, those, those villagers accused the boy of being lazy because he was making the old man walk. And they suggested that the old man get on the donkey with the boy. And so he did. And off they went, both of them riding on the back of the donkey. When they arrived at the fourth village, the townspeople of that village, they were indignant at the cruelty being shown towards the donkey, making that donkey carry both the old man and the boy. And so to please them, the old man and the boy dismounted, and the old man picked up the donkey and carried him off down the road. The point of that fable is that you can't please everybody, and that's okay, because you weren't made to. This whole series called Living on Purpose has been our exploration of what Scripture says our purpose is. And one purpose, one reason we were created is not to please people, but to please God. We were made to please God. I want you to notice this passage in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. There we are told that God predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. If you skip a little bit further into Ephesians chapter 1, you'll come to verse 9, which also says that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. What Paul seems to be saying is that we were planned for the pleasure of God. And that same idea can be found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, where John sees a vision of God seated on the throne of heaven with 24 elders surrounding him. And John watches as those 24 elders fall down before him and worship him. And they say this, they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Now that term, that term translated will, comes from the Greek noun, from a Greek noun, which according to Thayer's lexicon refers to one's will or one's choice or one's inclination or one's pleasure. Thus God's will and God's pleasure are really one and the same. That's why some English translations render this word as pleasure in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. The word translated will, they render it as treasure, excuse me, as pleasure instead of will. 
For example, one translation in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11 says, For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you please. Another translation says, Everything existed and was made because you wanted it. These elders were echoing a truth that's recorded in the Old Testament. Psalm 115 and verse 3 says, Our God, He is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And Psalm 135 and verse 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. The point is that God created us not only because it was part of his will, but also because it pleased him to do so. Do you know what that means? That means that each person exists to be a delight to God. God did not need to create us. He chose to create us. And these passages indicate that God created us so that he could love and enjoy us, so that he could find pleasure out of us. And for that reason, the Apostle Paul repeatedly instructs us to live every day with the goal of pleasing God. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul said, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Then in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 10, Paul instructed us to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And in in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul indicated that his prayer for the church in Colossae, and I believe for Christians in general, is that they may be filled with the knowledge of him, excuse me, filled with the knowledge of his will, and that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Do you know why Paul put so much emphasis on pleasing God? Because we were planned for his pleasure. But what does pleasing God entail? That's what I want us to examine today. And I've I've boiled it down to three main things. Number one, pleasing God entails putting our trust in him. Pleasing God entails entails putting our trust in him. If you're going to be pleasing to God, then you have to prioritize him. We realize that, we understand that. But when we think of prioritization, we tend to think of, uh, of prioritization as a time issue or as a treasure issue. But ultimately, prioritization is a trust issue. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this is a passage we often reference when we want to talk about giving, when we want to talk about financial stewardship. But immediately after this verse, Jesus launched into a do not worry uh, instruction. He ended up talking about not worrying about material needs, uh, and his teaching concluded with the instruction to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness there in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. 
When you really consider all that Jesus was saying in this section, you can conclude that your master is determined based on what you trust the most. As a result, prioritizing God really is a matter of choosing whether or not you trust him more than anything else. And here's the thing. You cannot please God if you do not trust God. That's the basic idea found in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, which says, without faith, it is impossible, impossible to please God. See, if you don't have faith in God, if you don't trust God, then you cannot live life, live a life that is pleasing to God. See, faith, not just the intellectual, intellectual acknowledgement of God's existence, but, but also conduct that demonstrates that belief through trust, it, it's a non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable when it comes to pleasing God. Interestingly, right after the author of Hebrews said this, he gave us two examples of people in the Old Testament who trusted God. Think about what God asked Noah to do for just a moment. God, in effect, said to Noah, right after, excuse me, God, in effect, said to Noah, I want you to build a boat, a boat that you've never needed for a flood that you've never seen. God's request required Noah to have tremendous trust and what he was being asked to do. And then think about Abraham. We've studied him for, a, for a, a good period of time on Sunday nights prior to our um, inability to assemble. But think about what God asked Abraham to do. God, in effect, said to Abraham, I, I want you to leave your home to travel to a land that you've never seen so that I can make you the father of nations starting with a son that you're too old to have. When you reflect on the stories of Noah and Abraham, you realize that God was ultimately asking them to trust him. Even though what he was asking them to do didn't necessarily make sense. And that's the same thing that God is asking you and I to do today. He's asking us to follow him, to obey him, even though doing so is, all, is, is not always going to make sense. For example, it doesn't make sense to not worry about what you will eat and what you will drink or, or, or worry about what you will wear. It doesn't make sense to hate your own father and mother and brothers and sisters and, and even your own life. But to love your enemies... That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that in order to be first in his kingdom, one must be last of all and servant of all. Those things don't make sense. And God knows that such things don't make sense in the kingdoms of men. But what he's trying to ascertain is whether or not we're willing to prioritize the kingdom of heaven. Our willingness to trust him by doing what he asks of us, even though it doesn't make sense, shows more than anything else that he is our life's priority. 
And it brings God great joy when his people place their trust in him alone instead of all the other options that are available to them. It delights God when we follow his directions and live by his will even when it doesn't make sense to us. And it pleases God when we realize that he only wants what's best for us. And as a result, we choose to live a life that prioritizes his kingdom and his righteousness above all else. Pleasing God entails putting our trust in him. But that's not all that pleasing God entails. Pleasing God also entails choosing to adore him. If you're going to please God, then you have to understand that God has desires that must be met. Now, don't misunderstand me. Scripture clearly teaches that God does not have needs. When Paul was uh, preaching to the Athenian philosophers at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, he said in verse 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't have needs, but he does have desires. And let me show you what one of God's chief, chief desires is. You can see it when you go to John chapter 4 and look at Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. In John chapter 4, in verse 23, Jesus told that woman that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Did you catch that? God is seeking true worshipers. That means that God's desire, that, that, that God's want is for his creation to glorify him, to exalt him, to express their adoration of him. As one preacher said, God takes delight in the willful, joyful, truthful adoration from his creation. You can see this desire expressed elsewhere in scripture. For example, in Psalm chapter 69 and verse 30 and 31, David declared, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. And then in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 and 16, the author of Hebrews instructs us to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Now why? If you look at the end of verse 16, you'll see why. Because such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So here's the point. If you're going to be pleasing to God, then you must praise him. But I think we need to understand what, what, what such praise entails. And to help us with this, I want to take just a moment to share two passages with you. Passages that you are probably familiar with. There are passages in which Paul instructs, gives instructions regarding our worship and praise of God. The first is Ephesians chapter 4. Um, excuse me, it's Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19. Where Paul indicates that, that we are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
And that we are to sing and make melody in in our hearts to the Lord. The second passage is Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Where Paul indicates that our praise is designed to teach and admonish one another. And also to express our thankfulness to God. Now let me ask you. Based on these two passages, who is our praise intended to benefit? It is intended to benefit God because it is the means through which our hearts communicate our appreciation of him. And our praise is intended to benefit others because it intrinsically possesses the potential for education and edification. Now think for a moment. In those two passages, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19 and Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, who is not specifically identified as a beneficiary of our praise? Me. And what I mean is that neither of those passages specifically says that I will be the beneficiary of my praise. Now, I may be a beneficiary of your contribution to praising God, but I am not the beneficiary of my contribution to praising God. And that's because I'm not the focus of my praise, and you're not the focus of your praise. God is the primary focus of our praise, and others are the beneficiaries of that focus. Think for a moment. Think for a moment. About all the aspects of our worship assembly. Who's the primary beneficiary of each activity? Typically, the most time-consuming part of our service is the sermon. It is our opportunity to study God's word, but who is it primarily benefiting? It's primarily benefiting us. And throughout each service, we engage in times of prayer, and, and when we pray, we, we, we pray to God and we pray for God's will to be done and we communicate reverence to God through our prayers. But ultimately, our prayers are an opportunity for us to communicate our concerns, our requests, our thoughts, and our confessions to God. So prayer is designed largely for our benefit. And the Lord's Supper was designed for us to remember the Lord's death until he comes. It's a memorial that we observe so that we don't forget what it took to secure our salvation. But then spattered throughout the worship service are these times in which we sing. And they are absolutely, positively not about us. And here's the thing about our time of praise. It requires us to be selfless. But all too often, we approach it very selfishly. And and I speak as a guilty party. See, many treat the time of praise as an option, or, or they treat it like it's voluntary, like it's of secondary importance, and forget that it's commanded, that it's required, that it is of primary importance. We choose when we praise, and we choose when we don't. And we complain more about our time of praise than any other aspect of our worship service, other than possibly the length of my sermons. 
Some of these statements that I'm about to say will sound all too familiar to you. I didn't like the song selection today. There weren't enough upbeat songs. There were too many old songs. There were not enough of the newer songs. There, there were too many songs I didn't know. That song leader's pitch was off or that song leader's tempo was off. But when it comes to praising God, our mindset should not be on what can I get out of this. Instead, it should be what can I put into this because praising God is not about me. We should always approach worship with the mindset of David in Psalm chapter 19, verse 14, where he said, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And maybe, just maybe, we'll come out of this current situation and our hearts will be a little bit different about our time of praise to God because we haven't been able to do it together in so long. But we have to remember that pleasing God entails adoring Him. And the only way you can do that is if you make your time of praise about him and not about you. The third thing I want to acknowledge today as uh, a way in which we can be pleasing to God is that, that pleasing God entails doing everything for him. Pleasing God entails doing everything for him. See, if you're going to please God, then you have to accept that worship is a lifestyle. Just listen to the words of Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, where Paul said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Oh, I've lost my link. Hold on. Sorry. I was trying to find where I could click over to be live again. When you consider what Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 is saying, Paul indicates that worshiping God is not limited to the biblically prescribed activities conducted on the Lord's Day by his people when they gather together as a corporate body. Worshiping God also includes the way in which you conduct yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. We read from Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10 earlier, but let's do it again. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul prayed for Christians to walk, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him. Paul understood that pleasing God did not just happen when the church gathered for a worship service, but it, that it happened all the time by the way we conduct ourselves. And then there's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Just in this passage, which appears just one verse before, Paul's going to say that, that very well-known statement that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. One verse before that. Paul indicated that whether we are at home with the Lord or we are away from the Lord in this body, we should make it our aim to please him. Paul understood that everything we do has the potential to be either pleasing or displeasing to God. And the point is that there shouldn't be a part of your life from which God can't get pleasure. And just to help us understand this, consider the fact that Scripture indicates that praying 
for our civil leaders is pleasing to God. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, where, where Paul said, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God. Not only that, but Scripture indicates that obeying our parents is pleasing to God. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul wrote these words. He said, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. But not only that, caring for our family members pleases God. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 4, Paul said, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And one more example. Being benevolent is pleasing to God. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16, which we referenced earlier, we're instructed to not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The point of, of all those examples is to not say that those are the only ways that we can please God, but to show just how invasive our life should, how invaded our life should be with trying to please God. You see, pleasing God is not just a, about assembling for worship on the Lord's Day, it's about the way you live every day because everything you do should be pleasing to God. And this is exemplified the best by the best who ever lived. Jesus lived to please God, and the Bible indicates that God was consistently pleased with his son. At Jesus' baptism, God shouted from heaven, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And at Jesus' transfiguration, God did the same thing. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was a constant source of joy to the Father, and it was because, as he himself said in John chapter 8, and verse 29, he always did the things that are pleasing to him who sent him. Jesus lived to be a delight to his Father, and as his disciples, so should we. So if you're going to please God, then you must realize that everything you do should be pleasing to him. That your entire life is to be lived in a worshipful, worshipful manner. And as one preacher pointed out, the only thing you can do that God cannot enjoy is sin. Therefore, everything else should be for him. You were made. You were designed. You were planned for God's pleasure. We need to live every day with that as our goal. Now, I don't believe that, you're, that any of us are going to experience regret in heaven. But if we were, I think, I think it would be this. If, if we were to experience any regret in heaven, I think it would be this. That once we see him face to face and we finally comprehend his majesty, 
we will regret, we will regret that we didn't do everything possible to please him while we were on this earth. Her story, once upon a time, there was this great pianist. And he played for a sold-out crowd at the largest concert hall in town. And when he finished the performance, the audience gave him a standing ovation. But there was one old man who was sitting on the front row who didn't stand up and, and who didn't applaud the performance. And once the pianist exited the stage, he broke down in tears. And his, his manager asked him what was wrong. And the pianist said, didn't you see the old man in the front row who didn't applaud? And the manager said, yes, but everyone else gave you a standing ovation. Why does that one individual bother you so much? And the pianist answered, because the old man was the one who composed the music. He's the only one who knows what it should sound like. So he's the only one who matters. In similar fashion, we should live in such a way that we are only concerned about pleasing the author of life, as God is called in Acts chapter 3, verse 15. And that should be our focus and that should be our aim because as Psalm 147 and verse 11 says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. And that means... You were planned for his purpose. Excuse me. You were planned for his pleasure. So I want you to think today. Has your life been one that is pleasing to God? Have your decisions and your attitudes and your conduct been a source of joy to him? If not, what needs to change? What adjustments do you need to make so that you're living every day for his joy and his delight and for his pleasure? Because that's what you were made for. If you have not been a source of joy to God, if you have not brought him pleasure, then we encourage you to right what's wrong. And for some of you out there, it may be that you need to make the decision to become a child of God. If that's the case, I, I know you, we're not at the building for you to be able to, to be baptized at this very moment but we will make arrangements. And I know that you may be in a situation where, where you need to speak to somebody and you need to confess the struggle you have and you need to confess that sin that is not a source of joy to God. Well, you can reach out to any of our ministers or any of our elders. We'll be glad to assist you in any way where we can. Today, we want to invite you to be a source of joy, to live up to the fact that you've been planned for his pleasure. If you have any need to respond, please, please contact one of the elders, one of the ministers. We'll be glad to assist.